Logan, welcome to another episode of the Iranian Market Minute. Today is Monday, July 18th, and this is episode number 154. My name is Justin Hewn. I am your host. I'm the founder and publisher of the Uranium Insider Pro Newsletter, the only investing newsletter that focuses solely on uranium and publishes on a regular monthly basis. As always, nothing that you see or hear in this podcast is intended to be investing advice. I'm not your financial advisor. This is not financial advice. Please always do your own due diligence when it comes to investing and always take responsibility for your own choices. All right, good to be back with you guys again. Hope you had a great weekend. Um, relatively decent day in the uranium stocks today. We had um, the broad market uh, opening up pretty strongly and reversing in a pretty nasty way today. And a lot of the uranium stocks did also close back towards kind of just above their lows on the day, but still some decent outperformance on the day. And I'll tell you what, I'll take it. I'm going to talk a bit about some more Japan news in the mailbag section, but first let's jump right into the daily scoreboard here. Spot price of uranium sitting at $46 a pound mid-market, up slightly from Friday's closing price. Very, very low volumes happening here in the spot market. Really not a whole lot going on there. Spot did, however, buy 100,000 pounds of U308 on Friday, but of course they did not raise any money as they still are trading at a significant discount to their net asset value. However, that uh, discount to NAV did shrink again on Friday, closing at minus 11.14%. Uh, closed a bit more on the day today. Good to see them uh, investors sort of uh, chipping away at that discount, moving back towards parity, back towards that uh, trading at NAV. And eventually we will see money coming back in in decent volume at a premium to NAV, greater than 1% premium to the previous day's closing NAV, where they can issue shares into the open market, raise cash, and buy more physical uranium. So the total net asset value of SPUT now sits at 2.66 billion, and they've got 55.2 million, 55 million in cash in their treasury. Year to date, SPUT has acquired a total of 15.5 million pounds, and they've raised 847.5 million in new capital. And that includes uh, almost no capital raised over the past, let's say, eight to 10 weeks. Astonishing numbers for the first start of the year, with an exception of the risk off uh, situation we've been in over the past few months. Turning to the ETFs, URA reported further redemptions of another 240,000 shares. No change for URNM. That was about three, uh, little, just over 3 million in mandated selling com coming from URA's uh, redemptions. And now that was probably Wednesday or Thursday of last week. All right, why don't we go ahead and take a look at the charts. Starting off with URA up 1.81% on the day. As I mentioned, it did pull back significantly and close near the lows of the day. However, it did gap up on the open. Volume still not there. Either way, nice to see positive day for URA. And if we actually look at URA relative to the S&P, um, had a nice green candle today. We're back above that trend line in terms of performance relative to the S&P 500. I am pleased to see that. I would like to see that hold. If not, I would like to see that consolidated. Further downside beta relative to the broad market is not something that uh, I definitely enjoy. So happy to see a bit of outperformance there for the uranium stocks today and decent performance across the board for the commodities-based portfolio. Looking at Cameco, Cameco up today, 1.12% on the day. Um, not a whole lot of volume at all, really nothing there. Uh, just looks like seller exhaustion and a bit of uh, positive performance based on markets, kind of uh, maybe not putting a lot of risk back on, but at least not tanking. And you know what? Uh, like I've said before, it sure feels good when they stop hitting you over the head and with the hammer. Sprott Physical Uranium Trust 
up 3% on the day. And uh, with the spot price barely up, we're probably now right around the 8 to 9% discount to NAV. We're getting there, folks. It's it's definitely been an underperformer in terms of expectations from the markets. And um, do I believe that uh, we can put a fork in this one and it's done? Absolutely not. This is a highly, highly liquid vehicle, and this will still be a go-to vehicle for institutions when risk gets put back on and when that money starts coming back into the sector, which I strongly believe will. I want to lastly look at URNM relative to the spot uranium price. Nice move up today with the equities um, uh, going up 2% relative to the spot price. Very, very good to see. Now, I drew this line, this horizontal line at the lows that we saw two weeks ago in terms of the equities relative to the spot price. And that we filled that gap back from September. And I've been highlighting that we're at or near valuations from the very beginning of the bull market for uranium, which was December 2020. Uh, We've moved up nicely since that moment a couple of weeks ago in terms of the equities performing relative to the metal. I don't see a whole lot of downside here for the metal. So the equities performance really right now is somewhat, if not largely tied to either the broad market or the general movement of uh, you know, a broad basket of commodities that actually seems to be in some days trading um, with most commodities when, when the dollar is going weaker, you'll see uranium up with uh, a bunch of other commodities-based stocks up. The dollar pulled back pretty hard today, um, did bounce a bit intraday. But we've also seen uranium move with oil a bit here. So it's kind of just getting pushed around with the tides of various other correlations, commodities-based correlations, uh, broad market-based correlations, and general just risk-off situation, which we're not quite out of yet. But I have to say, I am very pleased with how things are setting up here and how we're doing in terms of uh, coming out of this hole and uh, putting in a bit of basing here, I would love to see this chop sideways for a little bit longer. Honestly, I don't like V-shaped recoveries. They don't ever feel all that sustainable. Um, the longer the base, the bigger the move. So you can see how long we based here. Uh, you know, in this in this range, right? We based for a very very long time here in this range. Um, I mean, this is multiple years in this range. And when we went out of that, we blew up and it just was, was a beautiful move to the upside. So um, I'm very, I would love to see some consolidation here and forming a base pattern over the next weeks, if not months, I'm perfectly fine with that. I know a lot of people treat this trade with much less patience than I do. And you know what, that's totally fine. It makes market. I would like to see a base. I would like to see um, some sideways chop even if it uh, means that that's frustrating for people that entered at higher levels and are just desperate to see things go back up to where they entered. Um, You know, I get it. That's just the way the markets work. Um, The markets tend to deliver the most pain possible to the most number of people possible. And this market is chopping traders up. So either you're out and you're largely in cash because you believe a huge recession is coming and just trying, trying to time the bottom or you're on and you're holding. But the people that are trying to trade this um, maybe making some small wins, uh, shorting, and then uh, the market turns around, they just get chopped up. It's very, very difficult to trade choppy markets. Um, trading is far easier when the trend is clear, whether that's clearly up or clearly down. And I admit the charts, generally speaking, across most sectors currently are at least short-term bearish. Now, if we zoom out and look at weekly charts, you know things don't really look all that bad in the longer term, but short-term daily charts 
most of these stocks are bearish. Most of them are the momentum is to the downside. They're trading uh, well below the, you know, even the short-term moving averages. And I'm not just talking about uranium. I'm just talking about equities in general, stocks in general. Not a whole lot of um, bright spots out there currently. But we like to see um, sellers be exhausted. We'd like to see basing patterns. We'd like to see consolidation. We'd like to see a little bit of, um, okay, this is a bottom now. And we've been trading sideways for a month or two. And, and, and now we have this base to launch from whenever we see that move come to the U308 market, which uh, I definitely believe we will. Okay, mailbag section. Um, we saw a news story come in this morning, and this came from Stephen. Uh, Stephen, I really apologize if I butcher your name here. Stapzinski. Uh, Stephen is the, um, he's the Bloomberg's Asia Energy Reporter. And he, he puts out a lot of great stories, and he's definitely been on top of uh, the Japanese story in terms of nuclear. He actually clarified a tweet last week that I made after hearing that Japan planned to have nine quote unquote more reactors. And of course, his story um, laid it out a little bit more clear. Uh, strangely enough, Bloomberg and NukeNet both um, claimed that there were nine more reactors going to be built. That obviously was not the case. What the prime minister had said is they had planned to have up to nine reactors running throughout the winter. And they've restarted 10 reactors, which is why it's such a, that was such a confusing headline. But um, four or excuse me, five of those 10 reactors are currently offline for maintenance outages. And so the prime minister is wanting to restart and get some of those that are, have, have been restarted up and running and operating uh, before the winter hits as they are clearly seeing a huge, huge energy crunch and hugely rising costs for all of the energy imports that Japan has to make because they just don't have the natural resources in terms of energy. So Japan has to import it. Um, and they are certainly focusing on nuclear. Okay, this story is um, one that I'd like to highlight here. And I'm actually gonna show this tweet thread from Steven. And so let me go ahead and share my screen here. All right, so Japan is exploring new rules to increase nuclear power generation. The government could create an income guarantee program to promote construction of reactors. Policymakers see nuclear as a way to build energy security. He continues, Japan's effort to boost nuclear power may get a boost after the ruling party cemented its majority in an election last week. There appears to be a shift in public stance toward nuclear. The last time nuclear policy was being considered in 2014, there wasn't much public support. Okay, so uh, that's that's an important point to make, right? So uh, he, Stephen is staying, stating here that the last time um, they, were, they were trying to shift the nuclear policy, that was 2014, and that was just a few years after Fukushima. The public did not support it. The big difference right now is the public, the majority is in support of fast-tracking uh, restarts of nuclear. Their energy costs are going through the roof. Uh, so to have the public on your side is a major, major um, important factor for any of these oftentimes political decisions when it comes to, um, well, pretty much anything, having the public in support of the decisions really is important. And that obviously has a lot of influence on what's happening in Europe and Germany in particular. There's basically some major conflict with regards to their last uh, nuclear nuclear plants, but I'm not going to get the, into that today. Okay, Stephen continues here. Japan currently has no plans to build next generation nuclear reactors like SMRs, so small, small modular reactors. I've spoken about those in the past. Um, if you go back through uh, episodes of this 
of this podcast, you can find uh, an episode that I focused on SMRs just three or four weeks ago, where um, I just discussed the various types of SMRs and uh, the momentum building behind them. So Japan is one of the few countries that currently has nuclear and has in the past been pro-nuclear and currently is moving towards being again pro-nuclear that has yet to say, hey, we're very interested in implementing these SMRs. And part of the reason might be that they have you know, a huge fleet that's just sitting idle. You know, they don't really need to put a lot of money or time and effort into expanding into these new designs of SMRs, uh, advanced nuclear. Uh, but what, what he's saying here is that an income guarantee program could remove some of the economic risks for utilities, help get something on the drawing board. So um, they're saying that this income guarantee program that, the, that he's stating in the first tweet here uh, could, could potentially go towards supporting um, research and funding going into SMRs, development of SMRs, et cetera. That's a, that's a positive thing. While Japan's, Japan's prime minister has been pushing for more nuclear restarts, the central government has little ability to speed up the process. The regulator, local governments, and time-consuming upgrades have slowed down nuclear restarts. So basically uh, what he's stating here is that they're, they're looking to boost nuclear, right? And that's coming primarily from the federal government. And a lot of times the local governments can get in the way. Um, there was actually a story a couple months back where um, the feds were uh, in, a, in, in approval of restarting a reactor. The local government was in approval of restarting a reactor. They did all their due diligence. Um, any communities that are within a certain distance of the, that reactor, and I apologize, I think it was 50 kilometers. Um, they had to have the community of those, uh, the, the support of those local communities. They had the support of all of those, but the utility itself did not want to restart the reactor, at least not at that moment. So there's a lot of local issues that, um, that are going on here in terms of restarts for Japan. So now they're exploring new rules. Policymakers see nuclear as a way to build energy security. Yeah, that's obvious. So just to kind of put a finer point on all this, Japan continues to move in that direction. And um, why is that such a big deal? Why do we talk about it so much? It's because, well, SMRs are very exciting, and I do actually think they are the future of nuclear. Um, while new nuclear buildouts are also very exciting, especially in China, because they can do it so quickly, they can knock these puppies out in four to five years, right? On budget, on time. And there's 19 under construction right now in China. And in fact, um, another uh, construction, uh, another plant just started construction today. The news, story, news came out this morning that they poured first concrete. So uh, I believe possibly that makes it 20 under construction and they can knock them out. But proposed new builds of large reactors in basically any other country is positive, but it's not something you, you can really hang your hat on. Same thing with SMRs. We're talking demand at the end of the decade, you know, best case scenario, unless these things really get fast-tracked. But even then, best case scenario, we're talking 2027, 2028 for SMRs, right? And that's really that's really something where we wouldn't model that into our own demand forecast. You know, that'd be end of the decade at the soonest, right? But Japan... These are these reactors are already there. Um, many of the of the proposed restarts are in the later stages of that restarting process. And I'll, I'll reiterate: in order for Japan to reach the goals that they have stated they want to reach in terms of nuclear being twenty to twenty-two percent of their energy mix by twenty thirty, that's another twenty reactors restarted in addition to the already ten that they've restarted. And that's immediate demand. Immediate demand. And so. Um, a number of the nuclear utilities that operate reactors that are currently idled that could potentially be one of these additional 20 restarts, right? 
or multiple. Some of the, these utilities are still sitting on fabricated fuel, potentially even EUP, but most of the inventory, to my understanding, in Japan is held in fabricated fuel. Why? Well, because they don't have their own facilities, right? So uh, rather than holding U308 and then putting it through their own conversion and enrichment and fabrication, they have to just import the material. And so, but there is some inventory, right? The Japanese hold some inventory in other parts of the world. So when I say the Japanese, I'm generalizing, right? There's multiple util utilities, multiple um, traders, multiple operators that do have, let's say, U308 or UF6 or EUP held at various conversion facilities around the world. And they sell a little bit of that into the market, okay? Not a whole lot, you know? probably less than 5 million pounds a year. But further restarts in Japan, not only largely likely eliminates more pounds being sold into the market from the Japanese utilities or Japanese traders. I shouldn't say Japanese traders. There's some traders like Itachu that are active traders, right? They have offtakes um, from the Uzbeks and they sell in the spot market and they do you know smaller um, short and midterm trades, uh, carry trades, even potentially some long-term trades. But to the extent that these reactors can come back online, the utilities holding inventory for said reactors are not going to be selling that inventory into the market to the extent that they have it. They'll be utilizing it in their in their plants. And uh, twenty, if we do see another twenty reactors started in Japan in the next seven years, that's going to add demand. Some Japanese utilities will come back into the contracting market. By the way, we're seeing a little bit more contracting happening. We're now up to seventy-one and a half million pounds of U three hundred eight contracted year to date. It's a good sign. We are going to breach that 100 million pounds, in my opinion. And I think that um, once we get some important milestones out of the way in terms of um, the Western utilities understanding Western supply of conversion and enrichment, we're likely to see increased demand for U308. And I think that's going to happen this year. So I would not be surprised to see us breach that 100 million pounds for the first time uh, since 2012 per year. So uh, a contracting cycle, it's starting. It's basically starting right now. And um, everything is moving in our direction with an exception of the markets. That's it. And so will those markets turn? I believe they will. So that's what we're, um, that's what we're betting on here. All right, folks, I'm going to just uh, add another quick reminder here. This coming Thursday, July 21st, will be our July members-only webinar. This one's going to be a good one. Um, like I mentioned on Friday, there's an important NEI conference. It's literally a half-day conference. It's almost like a meeting, right? It's just, it's a meeting of the minds in terms of utilities and um, uh, players in the fuel cycle. And they're meeting in Washington, DC. This is a half day event. And um, there's a, uh, a person who will be in attendance at that event who's multiple decades um, experience in the nuclear fuel markets, who's going to be joining us on that webinar. So we're very, very much looking forward to this. There's a lot of really important calculations and um, forecasting even on a rough basis to be made right now, expectations of the markets. And we're really going to dial into what we expect to see for the rest of this year in terms of the U308 market. So that's on Thursday. If you are a member, I do hope to see you there live. It's always more fun when we have a, a good size um, audience and we get more uh, questions for ourselves and for our guests. But of course, if you can't make it, that will be recorded and replayed on the website later in that day. And it takes a lot of hours. So I apologize. Um, sometimes it takes you know up to six hours for that video, the recording to be downloaded from Zoom, um, uploaded back to Vimeo, edited and published. So, but either way, later on in the day, usually mid-afternoon, we'll have the replay up on the website for any members that can't make it to the live webinar. 
And as always, if you are not a member and you are interested in becoming a member or at least getting a taste of the content that we put out, click the link in the description below and we will send you out a free sample of a previous month's newsletter. You can get an idea about what those newsletters are like in terms of content. And if you are interested in joining just for a quarter to give this a taste, you can join us in that webinar and we do offer quarterly subscriptions as well. All right. Thank you so much for watching. I do appreciate all of you and I will see you again tomorrow. Cheers.